Hey everybody, welcome to the Running Rogue podcast. This is our first episode and we're excited to be broadcasting to you. We've got Steve here with us and my name is Chris. We are from Rogue Running in Austin, Texas. We're a running store and training center. We've been training athletes for various events from 5Ks up to marathons and ultra marathons since 2004. And we decided that we've got some things that we need to share and maybe get off our chest. But we've been doing this for over 12 years and we've learned a lot about running and training. And so we've got a lot to talk about and things to share. So today is our first episode and hopefully sharing some training tips that can help make you all better runners. Boom, boom. Welcome, Steve. Good to have you. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> all right. I'm looking forward to this. So this will be an experiment each week. So join us in the journey. We're going to start by giving brief introductions on ourselves so you know who you're listening to. And then we're going to go through, in about 30 to 40 minutes, three parts. We're going to start with a little news and talk about some current running events that may be relevant to you out there. Then we're going to talk about a topic each week. And this week we're going to be talking about kind of core training principles. And then finally, we're going to finish it off with a training tip to leave you as you head off. But first, quick introductions. Again, my name is Chris. I'm one of the co-owners and coaches at Rogue. And I'm a runner myself, although not an elite one. I grew up playing soccer and got into running later in life. And it's become a passion of mine, not only to do myself, but to share with others. So I coach a group on Wednesday mornings here in Austin. And it has become something that really is my my life, you know, work and life kind of blend together, which is fun because it's always, it's always an adventure. Steve is joining. He's actually the founder of Rogue and a former elite level athlete as well as collegiate coach. So he knows a lot more than I do. I'll let Steve give a brief intro. Sure. It's very hard for me to be brief with anything, but I'll do my best. Uh, I've been running since I was six and started racing when I was eight. So I have a lot of long-term running experience. Um, a lot of my, but mostly um, these days, I, I spend a lot more time thinking about coaching, thinking about how to get athletes to perform at the best level, at the best level they can. Um, formerly, I was a coach for a post-collegiate group called Rogue AC, a Rogue Athletic Club. Uh, we shut, shuttered those doors recently, and I've been focusing more on my adult marathoning and adult marathon uh, 5K and 10K groups. So um, have a lot of fun, a lot of experience coaching at all different levels from beginners to advanced, but um, I'm super excited about this opportunity to share some of the ideas that Chris and I have about, about coaching and sort of the history of things and um, just bounce around. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, so we'll see where it goes. Steve recently coached an athlete at the Rio Olympics, steeplechaser from Great Britain, Lenny Waite, who grew up in Austin. So he's come off some pretty, pretty uh, nice accolades there. Thanks, Chris. All right. So as we go into it today, we're going to, as I said, talk about a little bit of news that you might be seeing out there on the interwebs. The first thing we're going to do is cover something that came out yesterday, this press release and Runner's World article that many have seen about Nike and their project to try to break the two-hour barrier in the marathon. So we'll start it this way, Steve. Just a question for you. Would you characterize this as a gimmick <laughs> or something that you think is a real substantive contribution to the running world. You know, I'm kind of torn about whether or not this is a, just a, a, a promotional ploy by Nike to try to uh, get more people to pay attention to them and their, and their running products and all the other things uh, that they're trying to do, you know, from a financial standpoint and the long-term substantive, really incredibly important long-term 
contribution they've made to track and field and marathoning in general. I mean, where would we be as a running culture if Nike wasn't doing what it was doing? Um, I, I'm, I'm torn. I'm not the biggest Nike lover in the world. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say. One thing I do think that's really important to think about, though, is these, even if it is just a promotional stunt, I mean, it's going to bring people to start thinking more and more about what is humanly possible. And the, you know, the sub four minute mile still has this resonance throughout and general, the general public around the world that really means something. And while the sub two hour marathon doesn't, it seems to be the only thing that we have left that people can really sort of get behind and say, wow, this would be really, really cool. So I'm, I'm kind of torn on both sides. What do you yeah. think? Oh, God, I tend to land in the camp of it being a gimmick that isn't necessarily good for the sport. But you know me, I'm a little bit of a cynic. I think the problem with it is this. One, you know, the current world record for context for people is, is two hours, two minutes and 57 seconds. So this would be slicing essentially three minutes off the world record. They're saying they can do this in early 2017 and have admitted essentially that they're going to have to cheat, so to speak, in order to get it to happen. So it's not going to happen in an open marathon. It's going to happen in very controlled conditions, perhaps with the aid of a downhill course or some sort of tailwinds that they artificially create or maybe put springs in shoes as some of the speculation is that's out there. So it's a little bit of a gimmick anyway. They know they can't get there legitimately, so they're going to have to do some things to stack the deck in the favor of the push. And so I feel like the challenge with doing it that way is that you... One, if they don't get it, you, know, you get all this kind of energy and buzz. And then if people see it doesn't happen, then they kind of turn away and find the next thing to look to. But also it devalues some of the real work that goes into marathon performances at that level or at any level. And so that's the frustrating part for me. Um, you know, If you look at the athletes they've chosen, there's certainly three of the best marathoners out there. You've got well, two of the best marathoners out <laughs> well, there. Two of the best, and the, and best, and the best half, half marathoner. <laughs> so Kipchoge, Decisa from Ethiopia, and Tadisi from Eritrea, who is that half marathon world record holder. So all of them have credentials. For those that don't know, Kipchoge was the Olympic gold medalist and arguably the greatest marathoner perhaps of all time. He hasn't broken the world record, but He's he really, was five really seconds close. short or six seconds short, I think, yeah. in one of his efforts. I think the other thing that's interesting to note in this whole discussion is that if you look at the last three world record holders, including the current one, Dennis Cometo, they're all Adidas athletes. Mm -hmm. So this is another another shot across the bow in the Nike versus Adidas war out there. Yeah, you know, another really interesting thing to think about, too, in this process is in 1991, Michael Joyner, um, who is a, a, an anesthesiologist of all things from the Mayo Clinic, put out an article or put out a, a basically a calculation trying to figure out the physical, physiological limit of man in the marathon. So basically looking at the perfect athlete under perfect conditions, um, his prediction was 157.58. So that's a two full minutes underneath. So again, now this is just some crank sitting in his, sorry, no offense, Michael, but this <laughs> is some guy sitting in a ivory tower trying to run the numbers to figure these things out. But, you know, people have been keeping that, you have to keep that in mind in this process. I don't think, I think that chasing a two-hour barrier, as long here are my basic, my basic rules. You can't do a downhill race. You have to do it. You have to do it with. I'm okay with people breaking all the IAAF rules. I'm not really attached to all those things, but it needs to be something that legitimately the human 
population can look at and say reasonable. That's a human um, result. Correct. And not something correct. That was right. Artificial. No PEDs, which hopefully they'll be doing some consistent testing. All three of these athletes have been long-term clean in their career. No one has really had any. There haven't been any any questions about them. And again, I mean, Iliad Kachogi is the greatest marathoner of all time. I think it's definitive in my point of view. Um, and he's lends a, lev a level of credence to this task that sort of takes it outside of pure promo and pure bullshit. I think there's something real about it. So I'm interested to see where it goes and what happens. I think a little bit of background too is folks should get out, go out and get Ed Caesar's book, um, sub, uh, uh, sub two, which is a really, really good book and highly recommended sort of some context to this. He's also writing for the wired magazine, a weekly art of consistent articles following the progress. And in himself, he's like six, five, I think it weighs two forty, and his at the same time, she's trying to break one thirty <laughs> and a half. So, uh, th there are some other cool things going on with this project that I think We'll lend some credence to it. And, you know, anything Wired puts, gets behind, I kind of think is an interesting It's always process, interesting. So. I, and I think if there is a good thing to come out of it, if, if, if I take my sentence, cynics hat off for a second, is that the lessons from it might help all athletes in, in terms of figuring out how to optimize training results. So yeah, isn't that, that could Nike's be a good basic takeaway. point? I mean, their statement is we know that we're going to be setting these up under um, – ideal conditions that aren't going to be replicated in any other place, but hopefully it'll get people thinking about what they can, what can be done. And again, that's the value I think of Michael Joyner's art, Michael Joyner's calculations from 1991. I mean, people have sort of really sloughed that off and said, there's no possibility. There's no way, but the human spirit is is can do amazing things. And I will always be a believer that, um, the cynics are proven wrong all the time by, by absolute incredible human performance so I'm, yep. I'm, I'm not all in but i'm going to be watching <laughs> it fence. with bated breath and watching everything that happens so it's it's going to be fun to watch now one i think fun thought exercise for those that are out there if you think about running a two-hour marathon that's 434 per mile which equates to about a 68 second lap so if you got all your friends together and let's say you had 20 of them and 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 you wanted to do it as a relay you'd have to each run 68 second laps for over 100 laps that's hard to even think about, much less having one person do it for the full two hours. Well, I think most of your Americans are going to think that anything people are already doing right now, and a, a, a 202.57, that's already beyond beyond the scope of what we can consider. And, you know, I've I've run a half marathon and, you know, in, in 103, and I cannot conceive of the possibility of running 26.2 in but people are doing it, and I think that people are doing it clean. I'm not sure that everyone's doing it clean, but people are doing it clean. So um, as, as they like to call it, this is the, I guess, we'll see what happens with this moonshot marathon that they've yeah. got planned out. We will see. Breaking to follow that with Nike. You can check out more on Runner's World. They have an article on their, their homepage on it. Okay, so let's talk about our topic. So as we mentioned in the introduction, Steve and I are both coaches with Rogue Running in Austin, and Rogue began in 2004 as a training program, essentially, when Steve had the vision to create training programs for the everyday athlete, modeled after the principles that elite athletes train with. A lot of the programming at the time, and even still now, is largely watered down for the everyday runner, thinking that that everyday runner can't handle the same training. But you said, no, that's not true. They can handle the same training. It might be different paces, but all the principles still apply. 
And so what we wanted to do in this initial podcast was just talk about some of the foundational training principles of elite athlete training that we really truly believe in. A lot of this is based on Arthur Lydiard's philosophy. Now, some of it has certainly evolved and deviated from that over time, but we're going to talk about five core training principles that we believe in at Rogue and that we think are important for everybody to think about if they want to be their best running self. Before we dive into those five principles, I wanted to get from you, Steve, a quick background on Lydiard. He's a New Zealand, old Kaji New Zealander that trained his guys on the farms of New Zealand. And, and so, and he kind of, came upon the scene, the world scene at the Olympic level and shocked everybody. So give us some more context on his background. Well, he shocked the world in 1960 at the uh, Rome Olympics when he had um, basically Peter Snell, uh, Murray Halberg um, in the context of basically one hour. He, he um, had two athletes medal, one with an Olympic gold um, and Halberg, I think he won the, uh, no, he won the bron- he won the gold too. So they had two golds and then they had John Davies, um, no, uh, Barry McGee get the bronze medal in the Iron Marathon, that same, that same Olympiad. So he burst on the scene from seemingly no- nowhere. Arthur was a, uh, as Chris said, cantankerous to say the least. I had an opportunity to meet him um, in the last year of his life and an amazingly charismatic individual, but also uh, hard-headed, thought what he thought, and um, was not real open to other people's points of view. But um, he started out himself just trying to get in shape. He was out of shape, smoking like a pack of cigarettes a day or something like that, and uh, just started getting out on the roads in New Zealand trying to get himself in shape. He got to the point where he actually, I think, got third, second or third in a major marathon at a, at a world level. And um, sort of just did a DIY process of trying to figure out how the human body functions. He wasn't a scientist. He didn't bring clear scientific methods to the process. He wasn't in a in a lab anywhere. I mean, Peter Schnell, his best pupil, ended up becoming a, P- a PhD in exercise phys and and runs the Cooper Institute up in Dallas now. But you know, he he comes at it from a completely non scientific route. He was systematic, but not scientific. And um, but the results, if you look at the results that he had, direct medals, he had uh, 1960, he had uh, three medals. 1964, he had Peter Schnell win the 800 and the 1500. Um, John Davies got the bronze in the 1500. His indirect gold medals, I think, are even more impressive. Lorraine Moeller, um, who was coached by John Davies, who was a, uh, a bronze medalist in 1964, he, she won the bronze in the marathon. And really the greatest the other person people could call the goat, which is the greatest of all time and probably will always be the greatest of all time in my mind, Lassie Viren, you know, he won golds in 1972 and 1976 in both the 5K and the 10K directly um, in this in this Lydiard lineage. Um, and people could argue around the world that a lot of what's going on in East African, the way they train um, is 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 directly in line with the stuff that Arthur Lydiard did. So most yeah. modern distance training is founded in some way in those principles. Obviously it's evolved. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you'd have some different schools of thought out there, but, but he was sort of the founding father of modern distance training. And the thing that was crazy, I think with him was people were like, New Zealand wasn't on the world scene that all of a sudden New Zealand was on the world scene, winning medals and not just medals in one event or one off. It was several athletes from the 800 meters to the marathon and suddenly people were like, what's going on down in New Zealand? And the world found out. It was also rumored, I hear, that Lydiard himself ran over 200 miles a week <laughs> at one point as he experimented on himself. But, yeah, he definitely went through the paces himself. He was not a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do coach, that's for sure. 
But the founding principles, I think, are somewhat counterintuitive to some degree, or maybe they're not super intuitive, especially for the, the lay person who might be thinking, how can I get faster? And I think a lot of people go out when they start running and they might pick a three or four or five mile loop around their house. And they think if I just try to run that loop faster every day, then I'll get faster. Well, it's a lot more complicated than that. So we're going to talk about five core training principles and what each one means and a little bit of how you might apply that in your training world. The first one, which is really the kind of core of Lydiard, and many people may know him for this, is that the miles make the champion. Miles matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to do the work. And, you know, he's got a bad rap over the last few years. I mean, over the in the 70s and the 80s, people started to say that he was a proponent of what people call LSD or long, slow distance. And a lot of that came out of, he was a huge influence on Bill Bowerman at a crucial time in Bill Bowerman. He was the head coach at the University of Oregon and uh, was coach of Steve Prefontaine and many other amazing um, U.S. Uh, distance runners. Uh, but it was Bill Bowerman's sort of idea about getting people jogging that really exploded this jogging craze that happened in the 70s. That, along with Frank Shorter's 1972 Olympic gold medal in the marathon, really just opened Americans to this sport that was really popular around the world, but not so popular in the United States. I think that um, all those guys in that 70s, the, the, the ethos in that time was run as many miles as you can. And they all came from this basic principle of getting aerobic development. Um, you know, another really interesting thing is at the time, uh, the training models were mostly about all about doing interval work, lots and lots of interval work. Um, people would run pretty substantial miles in an interval mode. So they would run maybe... 10 miles in a day with lots of 100s, like 100 repeat after 100 repeat or 200 repeat after 200 repeat and still get a a good amount of mileage, but then they might not run for another couple of days or they would run really easy running. And his view was just to continue to get the aerobic machine rolling. You just keep running mile after mile. And, you know, Peter Schnell, 800 meter runner, still at the times that he's run for the 800, he would be competitive at the world level to this day, um, you know, what is this now? 50 plus years later, um, he did a 20 mile run almost every Sunday over the hills in New Zealand. So uh, this model was a complete throwing up ending of what was considered normal or reasonable in training. And um, I think that might have had a little bit to do with things, too. So uh, yeah. the idea of of stretching the boundaries a little bit made people believe they could do things they might not have been able to believe otherwise. But, so you mentioned a half miler doing a 20 mile long run. And so some people might listening, looking to do a 5K, are probably now scared that you're going to go tell them <laughs> to run 20 miles on a Saturday. You have, and so let's give people context on that. You have this phrase that you use when you're describing new people in training that you call them aerobic babies yes. of sorts. Yeah. So talk about the physiological elements that are going in, that are, that are in play here as we develop the aerobic system. It's really simple, basic physiology, we you've to build the capillary base necessary for transporting oxygen to your working muscles. And the way that that happens by running submaximal for extended periods of time. Um, these scientific principles were determined somewhere in the 50s and the 60s. And I think even before, after the fact that Lydiard had already sort of found this as was working in the machines and the bodies that he was working with, we found out that this was actually true. And basically, you've got to get as much oxygen to your working muscles as possible. And the way that you do that is to build up red blood cells. And the red blood cells have to be built up by running slow, 
not really slow, slow, but running easy mileage. And so what I have found over the years is that the best approach is to get people running and running consistently. And for many people who are just beginners, that means walking for a little while and then running till you feel tired and then walking for a little while and then running till you feel tired. But the goal should be to stay out for extended periods of time and um, get your body acclimated and adjusted because I also know that one of the things I love to say is the human body can adapt to any stress if you give it enough time. And while I don't ask and propose that people should all run 100 miles a week as Lydiard did, his view was if you don't run 100 miles a week, you're wasting your time. Um, I do think that the more miles you can run, the better. And that's our approach at Rogue and with every athlete that I've ever coached is where's the law of diminishing returns with that? Well, that's, you know, some of the other principles we'll be talking about that Lydiard was a proponent of are important in that regard, but doesn't change the fact that no matter where you're at, you need to extend the amount of time that you're running. And the best way and the best way to do that is to run a little bit slower than what you might normally run. And that's a little why the LSD or long, slow distance sort of misnomer came about. Um, but it's true for beginner and intermediate level runners. Because uh, if you slow down, you can be consistent and healthy. Correct. Because a lot of times people get out there, they start running, they go too fast, they break down, and then they stop. And then there goes the miles. The, the calves, the Achilles, they can't take the load that fast running puts on them. And as we age, those become even less resilient. They're less able to handle um, really ballistic hard pushing off that happens when you run fast. So um, now running slow and easy has its own problems that can happen over time. And so adjusting paces are important. But for the point of our conversation about the real revolutionary approach that that Arthur Lydiard brought was you have to do the work and you have to put the miles make champions, which is just such a crucial, crucial view. Um, you know, that's the base training that many of your programs that people will look at and, and find in books all over, all over the, all over the bookshelves and the internet of, in the world about what basic fundamental training is building a base, getting those initial aerobic, easy run miles in is crucial to long-term success. And it's something I think it's important to know too. It's something that happens over a period of years, not months. A lot of times people think of running goals and short-term windows, but really, your aerobic journey is a multi-year process. You can continue to develop those aerobic system elements for many, many years. And if you keep it up, you should continue to see improvement. The only thing that will limit you is getting hurt. So that's the whole point is try to not to stay within the rain realm of, of what your body can handle and what your body can manage, but still, but still continuing to get up every day and being consistent. I think that's the real key of Lydiard's system. Yep. Miles make champions is more consistency. All right. So number one, miles matter, miles make champions. So run more, Sim- simply put. Second one, he talked a lot about feeling-based training. And I know in our world today where the Garmin and <laughs> these watches that track everything from pace to distance to steps has become really popular, but in some ways it can be counterproductive. So when he's making the point about feeling-based training, what – how do you interpret that? Listen to your body. Um, you know, it's a it's a fundamental approach that we think is is in the antithesis of getting better or getting stronger or getting faster. We think um, culturally, if X is good, then X plus must be better, um, and that's not necessarily the truth. Um, you need to. Uh, do you want to continue to do more? You want to run more miles. You want to 
run faster as you can, but it always needs to be done in a context where you're checking in with what's happening aerobically within your body, um, what you're, what's happening with your feet on the ground, what's happening um, with your breathing, what's happening even in your head in terms of, is this hard? Is this easy? And beginning to create a dialogue between the head and the heart that says, okay, I can manage this. I can handle this. Um, you know, and yoga has a great term called flow or flow yoga is an entire approach that took, you know, this sort of, the sort of asana, the, the, the complete pose process of you had to hit these poses and be basically a human contortionist in order to be effectively a yoga person. In the 70s and the 80s, um, some real innovators came around and said, no, let's make these poses go through a wide range of of, of movements that are all interconnected and that are flowing and that required listening to your body. Um, and that flow process being connected with what's going on physiologically, but what also is going on in your mind mentally and also what might be going on in terms of what that, that crucial thing of feeling is, is really important to the running process. And I think Lydiard doesn't get enough credit for um, really uh, pushing that view um, you know, those famous 20 mile runs that Peter Schnell was doing back in the sixties, you know, they were no paces. He, he author gave no, okay, you're going to run this run in this amount of time. It was always, what are you going to do today based on what the workouts we did this past week, how they affected what workouts we might have coming up over the coming weeks and, uh, roll as it goes and see how it feels. And, um, not only did they have an, a fantastic and, and, and sort of fun time, you know, mates chatting about whatever they were chatting about and talking about whatever goes on in the world because they were able to hold on a conversation, but they were also getting amazing aerobic development and going back to that point that we were making early on about the miles make champions. So this feeling based approach, um, I think is really essential and you know, the Garmin, it's still valuable. You know, I, I still think I'm not a, a Luddite. I mean, I <laughs> truly do think that we need to take advantage of these, of the technologies that are available to us. But I think that they need to be processed through what the body can handle and what the body does, because it's a it's a huge it's a huge part of who we are as human beings. We we can't take hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution and throw it into the into the dustbin because my Garmin tells me I'm running two percent slower than I thought I should have been running, and so therefore I must be an epic failure. I just <laughs> can't go down that road and think that that's appropriate. So. Uh, author was ahead of the game. Yeah, it's way. important as a feedback mechanism, but not something you should be a slave to. One of the things I often remind my runners of is that oftentimes when we're doing a workout, whatever it may be, the effort can be more important than the pace. A lot of times, and especially if somebody's training for a longer distance race, like a half marathon or marathon, oftentimes you're doing speed work at lower intensities to develop economy at those race level paces. And so I often remind them that it's not necessarily, if you feel good, it isn't necessarily about pushing harder to find the pain like we like to do in our society, but it's more about making that effort feel as easy as you can. That's where the magic is, is finding efficiency at those target paces. And most of the time we're not wired to think that way. We think if, unless we're hurting, unless we're stressed, then something's not working. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're in Southern, I mean, in central Texas in Austin, we we get really hot summers. And if I took the approach for getting folks ready for the Chicago marathon and say, we were going to hit marathon goal pace in July, no matter what that, uh, we, we, I would be killing my athletes. And it's just not something 
that makes sense some of the time. And so you, while it's important to occasionally get to those places so that your body can handle it in the race, we also need to be much more cognizant about what's going on within the body. Um, and, you know, it's a key piece of, of any training program. The people who end up doing the best in races, in my opinion, are almost always those folks who have the ability to self-regulate and to know where they're at. Okay, first one, miles matter. Second one, feeling-based training is super important. The third thing we'll talk about, it's got a lot in it, is sort of every day has a purpose. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of times people go out and they run the same pace on the same course every day. They think that'll make them better. But really, if you think about it, your paces should vary from day to day to work different parts of the aerobic system. And that should change over time as you approach your goal race. So talk about every day has a purpose. Well, you know, we've learned in the world of exercise physiology over the last five, to 10 to 15 years, um, and we've seen these absolute amazing performances from the East African athletes that are running. They're, they will go back and say, their coaches have gone back and said, um, the most important thing that they did was allow their athletes to adapt. So they created, they kept changing critical workouts at critical times to make sure their body would adapt to get to the highest level they could possibly get to. And so those coaches have the ability to look at their athletes on a day-to-day -day basis, make adjustments to what they're doing, and making sure that that easy days are at a set amount of easy and that the hard days are at a set amount of hard. But they're always looking forward to making some kind of adaptation. And, you know, that was Lydiard's, one of his foundational principles was what he called response regulation adaptation or response regulated recovery. And this basic idea comes down to every day having a purpose and making sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing that day. To run too hard on a recovery day is to ruin the cake. It's to add salt. If you decide to add salt to your cake instead of sugar, <laughs> it's going to taste like shit. So <laughs> you need to know what each process, what every ingredient is in the cake that you're trying to bake and make sure that you're putting the right thing. And just because it's white and it's granular doesn't mean it's the right thing. So um, knowing what every day is, what you're trying to do in every day, and then also making sure that you're changing what's happening. And the best coaches in the world um, and the best coaches at every level, what are they doing? They're looking at what the body is doing, what their athlete's doing as a body, and they make subtle, gradual changes. You know, at Rogue, one of the things I do as a coach is make sure no workout is the same, almost never the same in any training cycle. I either change the amount of recovery or I change the amount of speed that they're going. I change the distance they're going. Some piece of the puzzle changes. And that comes from Arthur Lydiard's, you know, knowing exactly what you're doing, listening to the feedback that your athletes give you from a from their feeling based, and then plugging in these these at these specific regulated responses to get the result that you want to from a training perspective. So one analogy I use sometimes because I think it's counterintuitive. You think, well, I need to run slower some days to get faster. That's a counterintuitive thought. And so one analogy that I use for people, because most people can understand this is that if you're a weightlifter and you're trying to get stronger and lift more weight on your bench press, for example, most of the time you go to the gym, you're doing higher reps of lower weight. And then occasionally you'll go do more weight and then occasionally you'll max out to see if those things have improved. But doing that higher number of reps at lower weight is equivalent in our world to running slower and longer certain days. And, and if you think about it that way, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Um, I think you mentioned sort of every day having a purpose within the context of a week, but also within our, our programming, 
people will see different workouts as you get closer to race day. So talk about how you might do go through different periods of training as you build towards your goal. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we periodization is another fundamental principle that, that, uh, Arthur Lydiard introduced and periodization, uh, has changed in our programming over the years in terms of doing a big first doing with a big base or adding 5k training at certain sections of it. And, um, we've made a lot of, I've had the, the wonderful, uh, experience and of having a thousands and thousands of guinea pigs at rogue over the course of a 14 year career, um, working with athletes at the adult level and being able to run people through a whole lot of really tough, uh, programming to see what the adult who has a full-time job and a family and are balancing all the crazy things that need to be balanced in our modern world, what can they actually handle? And we've come to the point where we realize that you, you, what you might give to the elite athlete at, you know, Iliad Kipchoge is not necessarily what you would give to, uh, Jane Blow, you know, you're going to give them something different. And so what we have determined is mostly we take the season we're in the weather conditions we have and the race distance that they're going to choose. So you, people will hear me say a lot, what does the race require? Someone who's running a 5k race, they require something very different from somebody who's running a marathon, but what we try to do is keep fundamental principles the same of building a base while trying to get some faster speed work in, then go through a strength phase where we maybe do a lot more hill running, which is never a problem in Austin. And then finally, we try to put the icing on the cake with some specific marathon-based or 5K-based, whatever their race is, we go back to that real specific training for the race that they're going to be running. And then we put a bow on it with the taper and let them roll on down the road. So, you know, that's the, I think that these things that I just explained, how that process works is all foundational to what Arthur Lydia was doing from the beginning. So that's a good segue too. So we mentioned third principle every day has a purpose that leads into our fourth, which is that peaking matters. I mean, he was a big believer that you got to get people ready for a race on a, on a day. This is something you call gearing up for a command performance but this idea is that the human body doesn't develop linearly. It sort of cycles. And you're gonna, if, you, if you're using periodization, you're going to build to a peak, a point where you can get in a command performance. And then ultimately you might fall off a little bit as, before you rebuild again. So talk about that. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. It, this, I'm, a little, uh, I'm a little bit confrontational about this particular issue. I'm a big believer in command performances. It probably comes from my long-term experience as a track athlete. And I've always believed that the greatest performance is one in which you go absolutely to the edge of what you're capable of. And if you're running a marathon every fifth week, it's not possible. You're not going to know what the but the limits of what you're able to what you're able to do is going to be because you're going to be broken down down along the line. And so command performance means taking a vision of who you are and what you want to get accomplished as an athlete, putting a big, hairy, audacious goal out there in advance, and then taking consistent steps along the line to get where they need, where you need to be. I coach a group um, of pretty advanced level marathoners, especially for our adult population. And I tell all of them when they sit down with me, my program will be most effective for you 18 months from now. If you don't have 18 months and you don't give me 18 months, I can't guarantee you uh, the end result that you want. And if you're not capable of thinking 18 months in advance, 
then this might not be the right program for you because I'm going to be working with Lidyard's basic principles to get a command performance down the road. Um, you know, in the track and field world, this is understood inherently because athletes are trying to get better over a, a, a one-year period with three seasons maybe or over a four-year period as a high school athlete or a college athlete. Um, and for those at the very top level who are looking at Olympic trials or Olympiads, they're going in another four-year cycle. So that really is inside of their natural psyche to say, okay, there's four-year process to all the steps I'm taking. When you come back to the adult world and people want to have a PR yesterday or they want to get uh, a Boston qualifier immediately or they want a PR in the next week, it's a real it's really hard for me to even process that that I I do it and I know that every human being wants to feel success and have success in any programming that they're doing but it's also critical and crucial to know that you can't trick the body in terms of the way it adapts and you can't uh, be, and if you're going to be a marathoner, you're not going to beat the marathon without having gone up against some really difficult racing experiences. Experience is crucial. So, you know, that's our view is command performance with a long-term vision to what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and the experience of having achieved that, we had a, we had a, a girl who trained with us for many, many years, Nora Culligan, who Chris recruited to come to our team many years ago. And, uh, she had this long-term goal of making it to the Olympic trials. And, you know, six months before the Olympic trials, I, uh, before her great qualifying race, I would have told you I didn't think there was a snowball's chance in hell that she was <laughs> going to get to the Olympic trials. I just didn't think that there was any way we were going to be able to do it. But we had gotten together, you know, two years before that or or maybe even longer than that together and worked consistently towards the goal. As we got closer and closer to the race, um, she started adapting really well and started getting these performances. She ended up she ended up missing the qualifier for the Olympic trials, and then they changed the qualifying time in the window that she had. But that experience that she had of getting that qualifier, I can guarantee you there will only be a two or three other experiences in her life, probably being married, getting married, and having children, that will compare to that setting this huge, crazy goal, achieving it. Um, and to be a part of that process to me was just unbelievable. It's so cool. And that's what a command performance is. It's not just to get what you want, but it's to have a good life. It's to have an amazing life. It's cool and for stuff. her, it wasn't just a six month journey. It was a 10 year journey. That's <laughs> that, correct. And I've known Nora for 10 years. So it was fun to see that play out over time. Um, you know, I think the shorthand version of this last one of peaking matters is that you can't take shortcuts <laughs> you have to go through the process and you have to look at it with a long-term view arthur lydiard is famous for a story around the olympics where his athletes went out and did a 400 meter workout a couple weeks prior to the race in the olympic stadium i think this was the tokyo olympics and you know they nailed this workout there were other athletes watching them and the next day one of the canadian competitors came out and did the exact same workout and there was a media member there commenting on it and asking Lydia what he thought about this athlete matching the workout his athletes had done the day before. And he said, well, that was the last nail in his coffin. <laughs> and the guy said, well, what do you mean? He did the same workout yesterday or that you guys did yesterday. And, and Lydia said, well, my guys needed it. Mm -hmm. He he didn't. Yeah. And so that sort of underscores this point where you have to put all the pieces together in the right order and do it in the right way. Otherwise you're, you're, you might overcook yourself or you might not be ready. Yeah. There's only one shortcut. 
That's Hills. <laughs> and that's John Davies that said that many, many years ago. He was one of uh, uh, Arthur Lidyard's coaches, uh, Arthur Lidyard's athletes and was a coach to Lorraine Moeller, who was an Olympian and a, and a medalist. So, yeah, the only shortcut is Hills. We use those a lot, but they, they exact a high price as well. So, All right, so the last one. So that was peaking matters. There's no shortcuts. The last point that was critical for Lidyard, he had a group of 800 meters to marathoners training together and it's critical to our world. We have a hashtag we've been using this year called Run Rogue Together. But group-based training is important, not only for the accountability. If you know somebody's going to be waiting for you at 5.30 in the morning, it's easier to get up and get to do it. But also to pushing yourself, it's important to have those people around you. So talk about group-based training. There's absolutely nothing like another person in front of you to extend what you're capable of. Um, I, I, I don't know how many times I have seen individuals who would tell me that they couldn't do X, but because Sally did X, they suddenly knew they could do it. Um, and it only happens when you're training with other people. Um, it's easier to get burned out when you're training by yourself. It's easier to overdo it when you're training by yourself. Um, you know, that's one of the things we, we really stress at Rogue when people first join us is many of you are not ready for you know, a steak and, um, you need to eat baby food first to get started. But if you have patience and consistency and you get attached to the ethos and the esprit de corps that's going on with the group that you're in, eventually you'll find yourself moving up that food chain to the point where you're eating exactly what you want to be eating because you see the vision in front of you by those ahead of you. Um, you know, you've got, uh, anybody who has a coach will get great advice from a coach. And while I do believe everyone should have a coach, I have vested interest in that personally, mm -hmm. but I really truly believe that money people have too many blind spots to, and they don't have the ability to see where their blind spots are. And that's the value of a coach. I still think a person with a training group who's self-coached is better off than a coached person running by themselves. Um, it's, it's so important to have um, a group of people to keep you consistent, to keep you honest, and to run past you and keep you accountable for the things that you want day to day. Now, there is a there is a flip side to that where people have a tendency to overrun um, when they first join groups or to jump into a group that's a little bit too fast for what they can handle. Um, my experience has been just a well, if you're running in a group, you probably have a coach and then you have someone in that group who's able to, the coach or another athlete who's able to tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, maybe, maybe that's a little bit much for today. You know, in my team road group, we have a new guy that joined our group. I'm not going to name him by name. He might actually listen to this, but <laughs> we've nicknamed him Jack Wagon because he has this tendency to just go off the front in every single run. He's young and he's dumb and he's full of energy and excitement. So he's, we're watching this process, but I have so many great assistant coaches on my team that many of them have been able to rein him in. He just ran a race this weekend and followed the plan that we had for him. And, you know, one of his teammates, as soon as he came across the line, she leached back to him and said, see, following a plan and running with other people, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, I do think that there's just so much more joy. There's so much more feeling and we're, we're social animals. You know, we, we, we want to test the limits of what we're capable of, but you could test, you could, test the limits of what you're capable of it just by yourself. And it doesn't have anywhere near the same kind of meaning as if you do it with other people. I always say running is only a solo sport if you let it be. Mm. And so any new person out there or someone that might be starting, find a group that will help you get to your goals. And if you're in Austin, come see us at <laughs> We've got lots of options for you over a thousand in our community. 
So with that, I want to quickly summarize again for five principles. Miles matter. Number one, two, it's all about feeling based training. Three, every day has a purpose Four, peaking matters. So don't take any shortcuts. Follow the program and the steps with a long term view. And number five, find a group, find some people that you can run with and do life with on those miles together. With that, we're going to wrap that section and, and, and kind of finish it off with a final training tip that we've just given a lot of training tips, but this will be kind of <laughs> apropos for this week. We've got coming up this weekend for us, we've got a, what we call a, a race prep where basically you go on your longer run and we don't do this often, maybe three or four times a training cycle and you incorporate some of your target goal pace into that training run. A lot of the schedules I think I see out online, oftentimes it's about covering the distance. So you'll see a lot of the Saturdays are just an easy long run. But we think it's really important to build that race pacing into certain long runs to practice and get ready for race day. So talk about that. How important is it? And maybe give an example workout for a marathon or just so people have context. Sure. So, you know... It, we talked about one of our overriding principles at Rogue is to what does the race require? And it's really dangerous to run 26.2 miles at 20, at marathon goal pace. Um, if you do that, you might as well have run your race. So it doesn't make sense to do the full distance at the pace that you're trying to run um, unless you're doing that on race day. So, well, But what you do need to do is to have some ability to understand pacing, which is the first most important part of what's going on with these race prep type workouts is – what is the rhythm of that pace that you're running? So that's the first point. Number two, it's to extend the period of time that you're running at those paces and to begin to acclimate the mind and the body to the overall long-term stress that's going to be required to finish the run. And you can do that submaximally by not going the 26.2 miles, but breaking it into chunks and giving yourself an opportunity to run at those paces. So it's pacing and getting the rhythm. It's also preparing for the load that's going to be happening in the race. And finally, to me, one of the very most important parts of it is you got to bit a little nervous the night before, set out your clothes, get your fuel ready for what's going to happen. And it's a dress rehearsal for what's going to be happening on race day. Um, we really pump up our athletes beforehand and try to get them excited about what's going to happen and make them know that these things, that these things are important. And, um, it, the only way that you can get used, get ready for that is to either to race and or to do these kinds of race preps. So there are threefold real reasons. Number one, get the pacing, get the rhythm, what 26.2 is going to be. Number two, get the feel for what you're going to have to do to extend this distance out over time. Um, and then finally, it's get at least as prepared as possible for what that race is going to th throw at you on that Sunday that you run your marathon. So dress rehearsal includes things like wearing the same shoes and clothes you're going to wear on race day, eating the same gels or blocks or whatever you're doing might your do. breakfast an hour and a half two hours before how early do you get up and then maybe roll back over and go back to sleep it's practicing those crucial and important things that are going to be nerve-wracking on race day you're going to wonder if it was right to wake up five minutes before or five minutes after well at least all of our engineers in the world will be in that mindset <laughs> of what would be best and so if you've practiced you've been able to sort of calm down that stress you'll have a plan of attack for what to go through so a, a, an example workout might be for, let's say, um, you know, all of our beginner runners who are running a marathon, we don't do the race 
pace work. We don't do the race prep stuff for them um, on this on that Saturday. Um, they will do race pace stuff and marathon base pace stuff and their other quality workouts throughout the year, the season. But we feel like getting to the finish line of a marathon your first time is a big enough goal and it's an important enough that we don't really push that. But our intermediate and advanced level runners, this is an example of what they might do. Um, we have the benefit for us of having to get the chance to run on part of the Austin Marathon course for this race prep for our group. So what we'll be doing is about a two and a half mile warm up um, to get to the start of where the race starts from our store. And then they'll do four miles at their marathon goal pace on the race itself. Um, if you're not able to run on the marathon course that you want to, you should go to the website of where the race is, look at the elevation chart and try to find something reasonably close to the kind of first few miles you'll be experiencing on race day so that you can get a feel for that rhythm and what the pace feels like. Because believe it or not, for many, most people, marathon goal pace feels really slow. Um, it's not as slow as your easy run, but it's, it doesn't feel like you should, like you're racing, especially in those first five to 10 miles. It's very easy to go too fast. So we do about four miles, then they run about two miles easy. Um, and then they'll do another section of three to five miles, depending on their ability level so that they've got an opportunity to run more miles after a break at their marathon goal pace. And then, um, for many of them, they'll just finish their 20 or 22 mile run because They've got, by the end of that 20 to 20 mile, 22 mile run, they will be feeling the physiological bang that 20 miles plus mileage will give to you. And they'll be able to start to think through the mental challenges they're going to have to overcome in that final 10K. So you don't have to go through all the specifics of your marathon in order to have a great marathon training experience, but you have to go through some of them or everything is so novel and new and the pain is so different that um, it's extremely hard to overcome that need to walk or to quit or to throw the towel in from a goal mile goal time perspective um, you know another quote I'm pretty famous for you'll be saying you're hearing from me frequently is that the marathon always wins um, this is something that I truly believe I think each athlete maybe gets one or two marathons in an entire career where everything goes perfectly and everything goes well and everything goes amazing um, and so preparing for the fact that you're going to have to go through the dark night of the soul is an essential part of the process. Uh, so we train that here at Rogue. Um, for our half marathoners, they do similar things. Um, but again, they don't do exactly what they would be with what the race is going to require. But we get close or as close as we can. I always like it, secretly like it as a coach when those workouts go poorly for my athletes. Because then, <laughs> cause then they have to fight and deal with the demons of it. And, and yet they've still gotten the physiological benefit versus sometimes when it goes really smoothly, they get a little bit overconfident. Yeah, I don't know how many times an athlete has said to me, there's ab, if they finished a key race prep, there's absolutely no way I can run 26.2 miles at the goal pace that you set for me. And I say, calm down. You weren't supposed to do it today. You're <laughs> going to do it on race day. And then in almost invariably they get extremely close to that. Um, and they're almost always shocked at how much how much that kind of preparation makes a huge difference because we don't, we're not, you know, evolutionarily, evolutionarily, we were designed to run exceedingly long distances at a variety of different paces, but we have forgotten that. And we've also forgotten the kind of pain that is associated with marathoning. Um, and any person that moves from a 5k or a 10k that moves up to the marathon, we see this at the elite level all the time. They will tell you that they were no matter how many times people told them what they be expect, what to expect and how it was going to, turn out, it was something completely different, no matter how they visualized what that pain and suffering was going to be. And so it's really important to have gone through 20 
plus miles at these kinds of paces and these kind this kind of work to be really ready for what that race is going to ask of you. So there you go. Fi- that was our final thought. If you if you're doing a half marathon or a marathon, think about incorporating some race pace work into some of those long runs. And if you're in town, come check us out. Thank you for joining us on our maiden voyage of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris and Steve again. If you're in Austin, you can find more about us at roguerunning.com or on Facebook forward slash rogue running, Twitter and Instagram at rogue running. Come find us, look us up um, and come say hi. We'd love to see you. Love to have you join our community. If you're not in Austin, check us out anyway and or listen to us from afar as we continue on this podcast journey. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time.